Hello, I'm James Holland and this is Chalk Valley History Hit. Today I'm introducing a novelist, which is quite a rarity, because at the Chalk Valley History Festival we tend to have only historians. And if we do have a novelist, then only the very, very best writers of fiction out there. Few, though, would doubt that Robert Harris falls into that category. His books are brilliant, sell millions of copies all around the world, and perhaps most importantly for us, are meticulously researched. In this talk, Robert was discussing the Dreyfus Affair, the subject of his superb novel, An Officer and a Spy. Here he is again now, heading back to the turn of the 20th century and one of the greatest and most extraordinary scandals ever to rock France. We're very lucky to have Robert Harris talk to us about the Dreyfus Affair. Robert Harris. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. I don't know where you get this idea that the ghost was anything other than pure fiction from beginning to end. It's very nice to be here. I, I have heard this is a very professional festival. I, I, I couldn't have believed that you did your World War I Flanders mud reenactment in the car park. <laughs> With such astonishing precision, really amazing. I think I'm going to be here for at least four years. They told me I'd be out of here by Christmas, but I don't... I really don't believe it. Uh, so I'm here to uh, talk about uh, my latest book, but I, I've written uh, eight other novels, and I know that some people prefer one or the other. So uh, while I'm here, um, I'm very happy to... Uh, answer questions on any of any of the books or on the process of writing. So I'll try and leave um, plenty of time at the end for uh, questions. Um, it's a very strange thing uh, being a writer, uh, certainly of my kind of books. If anyone had ever told me uh, two years ago or so that I would write a novel about the Dreyfus affair, I would have looked at them uh, with uh, astonishment. Um, it never occurred to me uh, to do such a thing. It came about in an odd way. Um, the uh, novel that I wrote, which isn't about a former British Prime Minister called Tony Blair, was made into a film by Roman Polanski. And uh, he called me at the end of uh, 2011, um, beginning of 2012, and uh, said, shall we collaborate on another project together. And I went over to Paris to see him. He said, you have an idea? I did have an idea. He liked it. We agreed we'd make that film. And then we went out to lunch. Uh, and I made the great mistake of casually saying, I see you've got a lot of books on the Dreyfus Affair in your office. Have you ever thought of making a film about that? I've always wanted to make a film about the Dreyfus Affair, he said. So uh, I, I came back to Britain, and about a week later I got a call saying, forget the other idea, you know. I've got a real hard-on for the Dreyfus idea. <laughs> Fine, listen. <laughs> Each to, each to your own. And uh, so I, uh, with, a, with somewhat heavy heart, I have to say, um, started looking at books on the Dreyfus Affair. I knew no more than the, the average person I would think about the affair. I knew uh, a Jewish officer called Alfred Dreyfus at the end of the 19th century had been wrongly accused in, in France of being a spy, that he'd gone to Devil's Island, and that eventually uh, he had been cleared 
and brought back. I knew that the affair went on for a long time and it involved a cast of hundreds of people. And really the last thing one wants is a story that goes on for, drags on for ages and involves a cast of hundreds. Uh, so I started looking at uh, the story thinking that there's no way that there's a film can be made from this. Uh, and then I came across a man I'd never heard of before called Georges Picard. Uh, Picard, uh, the youngest colonel in the French army. And as I read more about Picard, I realized that there was a way of doing this story, which wasn't the whole vast sweep of it, which was to do it as a espionage story, which is really what the Dreyfus Affair was at its heart. And so I went and saw Roman in Paris and said, I think we should do this as a spy story, a spy thriller, if you like. And he, whose who's interest had been more in the Dreyfus family, nevertheless, he accepted that idea. And uh, I became so obsessed with Colonel Picard that after a couple of months, I said to Polanski, listen, I think this would make a much better novel, <laughs> I'm afraid, than a movie. Could I do the novel first? And he said, fine, uh, I'm very glad to say. Uh, and so I went away and started work. And for me... Uh, the novel is so infinitely superior as a, as a means of uh, communication uh, to a movie, for me as a writer, that there is no contest. Uh, when I came across Pika, I wanted to get inside his head uh, uh, because I thought he was such a, a fascinating character. So you may ask, what is, what is it about Pika that so fascinated me? Well, he was born in 1854 in Strasbourg. He was a man of Alsace. He came from a reasonably well-to-do Catholic family. His father died when he was quite young. When he was 16, uh, the uh, Prussians, uh, the Franco-Prussian War occurred, and he was in Strasbourg when it was shelled. One of the first, I think the first, long-range modern artillery bombardment of a city caused widespread devastation and destruction. The French surrendered in 1870, and under the peace treaty, uh, Alsace and Lorraine were occupied, well, indeed returned to the, to, or taken over by the Germans, and people had a choice. You could either stay where you were and become German, or you could be French, but you'd have to go and leave all your property behind. Picard's family left. He went to Paris, to Versailles with his mother. They had uh, no money. Uh, from being well-to-do, they suddenly became genteel poor. The only form of education that was open to him, really, was to join the army. Picard was an extremely clever man. Uh, he spoke six languages. He translated Russian. He read Dostoevsky in the original. He was a very cultured man as a youth. He corresponded with Dostoevsky himself. He later became a great friend of Gustav Mahler. He was a fanatical Wagnerian, used to go to Beirut, uh, Bayreuth every year. Um, he was an interesting man. He was not your typical soldier at all. He went to Sancerre, the French Academy, and graduated fifth out of his year. Uh, and he went, he fought in North Africa and in Vietnam. He was decorated. He was a high flyer, there was no question of it. Uh, he was that curious scholar soldier a rather attractive figure. He was a loner. He uh, never married. 
I went recently to uh, the office that he used to occupy in the Ministry of War uh, for the French launch of my book and was shown a photograph of Picard there. And he had a rather camp way of standing, slightly like Alan Clark, you know, over to one side. Uh, and there were a lot of rumours that Picard was gay. But uh, I'm sure that he wasn't. He had a lot of affairs with uh, married women. Uh, and a lot of those found their way into the police files. Uh, I'm sure if he'd had homosexual lovers, his enemies in the French government would have lost no opportunity of exposing that. So he's an interesting and attractive, uh, remarkable figure. He was... Uh, he had the typical anti-Semitism of people of his religion and class, casual anti-Semitism, I suppose you would call it, which poses a difficulty for a modern novelist in a post-Holocaust world. Um, he made uh, a crack even about uh, Dreyfus's uh, degradation ceremony. He met Dreyfus, uh, who was five years younger than he, at the uh, École Supérieure de Guerre, uh, Picard, as part of his high-flying career, was appointed a professor there when he was in his 30s, and he taught the young Captain Dreyfus uh, topography. Uh, they didn't particularly know one another, but, and what they knew of one another, they didn't particularly get on. Dreyfus, um, curiously, though, has a lot of similarities to Picard. He, too, was born in Alsace, but in Mulhouse, in the German-speaking region. His branch of his family also elected after the Franco-Prussian War to move to Paris. The difference was that most of Dreyfus's family stayed in Germany or stayed in Mulhouse and became German and uh, because they had textile factory there and the money from the textile factory, a share of which belonged to Alfred Dreyfus's side of the family, the money came to him and he had a very lavish Lifestyle. His private income alone was 10 or 20 times the size of his pay uh, as a French army officer. That and the fact that he was Jewish, plus a certain um, aloofness perhaps in his manner or shyness, uh, hard to put one's finger on it, made him stand out somewhat and made him not particularly popular with his fellow officers. Uh, and it was for this reason that when the French secret uh, service, intelligence service, realised there was a, a traitor was passing uh, army secrets to the German embassy, uh, suspicion fell upon Dreyfus. Uh, and uh, Picard was recruited by the Minister of War and the Chief of the General Staff to uh, help lull Dreyfus into a trap uh, when it, so that he could be arrested without his family knowing what had happened to him. Dreyfus was instructed to turn up in civilian clothes at the Ministry of War, and uh, uh, Picard met him, and uh, because they knew one another, he, he, he conned him that he was, he'd simply been brought in for a routine uh, inspection. Uh, and poor Dreyfus, the door slammed behind him, and he was uh, not to be seen again. The... Uh, Picard had taken over something called the Stagiaire Programme at the French uh, minist uh, Defence Ministry, which essentially was that the high flyers from Sancerre, from the École Supérieure de Guerre, were given six-month attachments in each of the four departments of the general staff. And Dreyfus uh, had uh, completed uh, three of those attachments and was on his fourth. So, if you like, Picard was his sort of supervising officer of the Ministry of War. Picard was 
because now he was initiated into this great secret prosecution, he was sent by the French uh, war minister, General Mercier, to be uh, an observer for him personally at Dreyfus's secret court-martial. There were only 13 men in the room. One of them obviously was Dreyfus, and another one facing him across this small room throughout the four days was Georges Picard. Uh, and when, P when Dreyfus was found guilty, Picard was sent by the same Minister of War to observe this terrible ceremony of degradation in Paris in January uh, 1895 when uh, Dreyfus had all the insignia of his rank torn from his uniform and his sword was snapped, a ceremony which took place in front of uh, five or 6,000 French troops and also 20,000 French civilians who turned out to watch the spectacle, which gives you some uh, sense of the stakes involved and of the level of uh, anti-Semitism in France at that time. There were shouts of death to the Jew and Judas and Theodore Herzl, who was there as a reporter. Uh, it was one of the things that convinced him that the Jews had to have their own state uh, and led him to campaign for the establishment of Israel. So there was quite a lot hung on this particular event. And then uh, Colonel Picard, or, or Major Picard as he then was, was rewarded for his diligence in these matters, in part of having shown himself a trustee, by being put in charge, amazingly, of the very unit, the very tiny secret unit that had investigated Alfred Dreyfus. He was promoted to colonel at the age of 40, making him the youngest colonel in the French army and putting him on track probably to be chief of the general staff himself. Certainly he would have been a general by the time he was 50. Uh, he went into this small unit that had tracked down Dreyfus and here for the first time he walked through into the secret world of espionage and he was made privy of, to some of the details about how uh, the French army had lighted on Dreyfus as their suspect. Um, the French had a, the best secret agent in the world, probably, at that time, on their books, and uh, she was a cleaner. She was the cleaner at the German embassy. More specifically, she cleaned the office of the German military attaché, Colonel von Schwarzkoppen. And uh, he assumed that she was burning his rubbish, uh, but in fact she was stuffing it under her skirts and bringing it to the French army, uh, week in, week out. Uh, as a result of this, the French army knew that uh, Colonel von Schwarzkoppen was having an affair with the wife of the Dutch ambassador and also uh, with the Italian military attaché. Uh, he, he was nothing if not versatile, Colonel von Schwarzkoppen. And uh, so um, Picard discovered this. The, the man who was the liaison with uh, Madame Bastien, which was the name of the cleaner, uh, was a, a major Henri, who had hoped to be in charge of the statistical section, as the secret unit was called himself, but instead he found this, what he must have thought, Ponzi intellectual. Uh, promoted over his head. So there's a certain degree of tension from the start, which for me as a novelist uh, is marvellous because you can now begin to see what this character is doing. He's enabling me to go into the whole affair and to bring the reader in too. And as he learns the details of the story behind the Dreyfus affair, so uh, 
uh, we, uh, the audience, uh, can learn it at the same time. Um, PCAR uh, took over the statistical section, ran it for about uh, nine months, uh, and in that time he saw all the correspondence that poor Dreyfus was uh, sending from Devil's Island, most of which never reached his wife. So the Dreyfus affair was continuing to run, and indeed Picard was continuing surveillance of the Dreyfus family and sympathisers, just in case there were more of these uh, Jews out there preparing to undermine uh, the French military. Um, what had convicted Dreyfus, what had been taken from Schwarzkoppen's uh, waste paper basket, was uh, a very small, uh, probably only about that size, piece of paper that had been torn into six pieces and then was glued back together by uh, the uh, French intelligence, by Major Henri, uh, and it was the so-called Bordereau. It was a list of uh, five documents that had been passed to the Germans. It was unsigned. Uh, the handwriting seemed to suggest uh, that this had been written by uh, Captain Dreyfus. That was the only evidence against Dreyfus. Uh, about nine months after Picard took over the uh, statistical section with the general feeling that they had the man on uh, Devil's Island, or at least that's what he assumed, um, there was a fresh consignment of waste paper was delivered to the office, one of which was 40 or 50 fragments of tiny blue pieces of paper, which when glued back together recreated a pneumatic telegram, a, a petit bleu, as they were called in Paris. There was uh, running, uh, following the line of the French sewers under Paris, uh, was uh, a network of pneumatic tubes, and you could, f rather like we used to have in department stores, you can fire a message from one side of Paris to the other in 30 minutes, uh, and it was a way of quick communication. You bought your card, you, uh, you paid 50 centimes for it, you wrote out your message, and you posted it. Well, whoever, this message had never left Schwarzkopf he'd written out the message and torn it into tiny fragments having thought better of sending it and putting it in his bin and this was what was recovered it was pieced back together and it turned out to be a communication um, between Schwarzkopf and what was clearly um, a, an officer who was supplying intelligence and when you turned it over you saw the address was to uh, Commandant Esterhazy with an address in Paris and you can imagine that for Picard, having been assured that Dreyfus was the guilty man, uh, this was uh, a moment of considerable importance because clearly there was still a French army officer supplying information to the Germans. He started to uh, mount a surveillance campaign on, uh, on Esterhazy and he took it into his own control. He didn't share it with the other members of the statistical section, which strongly suggests he was already beginning to feel a little uneasy about the people he was required to work with. This statistical section, which was only six or seven men, reminds me a bit of MI5 uh, in the early 70s, as described by Peter Wright, a sort of out-of-control right wing bugging and burgling its way around the city uh, outfit and uh, I think Picard began to realise he'd, he'd landed himself with a strange set of comrades um, he continued this surveillance of uh, Esterhazy and he discovered that everything about Esterhazy fitted the likely author of the unsigned Bordereau that had convicted Dreyfus and um, he uh, 
the confirmation of, the, of his suspicions really came uh, when a, uh, a, there was a double agent who the French had uh, operating in Berlin in the German military headquarters uh, called Richard Kurz. And he came to the, uh, the French military attaché in Berlin and said, um, Kurz tells us, uh, he's, he's, sorry, Kurz said, you can see how complicated this is, Kurz said to the military attaché, the Germans have a spy in the French army. And not only that, they've never heard of Dreyfus. Uh, they've contacted all their allies as well, and they've never heard of Dreyfus either. When this information reached Picar, he now realised the scale of what he was dealing with, and he took his concerns to uh, the chief of the French general staff, General Boisdeffre. Now, Boisdeffre at that time was organising the greatest diplomatic coup in Europe, which was the visit of the young Tsar, Nicholas, to Paris. Uh, indeed, one and a half million Parisians turned out to see Nicholas and Alexandra when they drove through Paris. Uh, in the spring of 1896, uh, autumn of 1896. So he had other things on his plate, and the last thing he wanted to do was reopen the Dreyfus affair. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Picard persisted. And that really then gave me my novel, because um, what we had with Picard was a moral dilemma. Did he, as this high-flying officer, keep his mouth shut, do as he was told and get the eventual promotion which would make him professional head of the French army, or did he do something about it? And really, my novel turns on that moral dilemma. Uh, in the end, I, I won't, don't want to give the whole story away in case I can persuade some of you to uh, <laughs> buy a copy. Uh, but um, what happened was that Picard found himself suddenly... Uh, turned into a kind of second Dreyfus. As he persisted with his inquiries, he himself was um, bundled off the case, uh, ordered out of Paris, uh, and effectively sent into exile. Um, it's a terrific story, and far from being uh, irrelevant to our modern age, I began to see how incredibly relevant it was and what a spectacular story it was. Because Picard uh, was sent to North Africa, uh, realised his career was finished, and indeed the French general staff tried to send him on a suicide mission uh, to the Sahara, to, uh, the, to near Tripoli. Uh, and at that point he realised they did not intend to him to leave North Africa alive, and he decided to break his oath of confidentiality. He provided information to a senior parliamentarian in Paris, and... Uh, in the end, either directly or indirectly, to Emile Zola, um, who was campaigning for Dreyfus's release. And uh, so uh, Jacuz was born directly uh, out of Colonel Picard. And I doubt, I certainly never knew that before I started work on this book, and I doubt whether anyone else does either. Uh, did or v Most people who have heard of the affair, very few people would have made that connection. Um, it's all very well uh, having this character and having the story, but then um, for me as a novelist, it's necessary for me to try and find some way of turning it into a work of fiction. And I took two decisions with the book, which I think were crucial. Uh, one was that I decided to tell it in the first person. And I imagined to myself that Picard wrote his memoirs um, 
uh, in around 1900 to be put in a bank vault and not read until a century after his death. And he died uh, in January 1914, uh, just before the First World War, and therefore January this year would, is the centenary of his death. That was... That is not relevant to the novel at all. It doesn't really feature in the book, but it was a little key in my mind which made me, gave, helped give me the voice and tone of the book, that he would, he would be quite frank about, about his personal life and about offices and so on because he wouldn't think that they'd ever read it. It was for future generations. That was a very liberating thing for me as a writer. I also decided to write it in the present tense. I know people get sick of this, historical novels written in the present tense, and I, I know what people mean. But nevertheless, it's a very good way of making a novel set in the past feel very immediate. Also, I felt, you know, that a lot of uh, French um, newspapers and so on are written in the present tense, and I thought that I could get away with it in that way. Uh, the second decision I took was to not start the novel with um, Picard and Dreyfus meeting for the first time in the relationship of tutor and pupil, but to start it with the big public event, the degradation of Dreyfus in the centre of Paris, as witnessed by Picard, who then goes and describes what he's seen to General Mercier. This then made the degradation, if you like, the crime at the very beginning of the book. And then we follow Picard as he begins to solve or understand uh, what has happened. And that meant that the things which I had to tell, the earlier story, the story of the, uh, the trial, for instance, uh, the, the Dreyfus' court-martial, they suddenly had much more relevance and point if they were told in flashback um, uh, whilst Picard was trying to pick, fit together exactly what had happened and what he... Uh, fitted together was a story of uh, almost breathtaking uh, cynicism uh, and corruption because Dreyfus had been convicted on the basis of a secret file of evidence that Picard himself either handed to the judges or was involved in the chain that handed this closed file of evidence to the judges. And that must have weighed on his conscience because when, as head of the statistical section, he finally called for the file and looked at it, he realised that it was simply a tissue of lies, uh, forged documents. It must have been a stunning moment for him to realise that the man who was his deputy, the people along the corridor... The, the senior officers, the chief of the general staff to whom he was reporting, all these people were well aware of the flimsiness of the evidence with which they'd sent poor Dreyfus to Devil's Island for life. Um, so by telling the story in that way, um, I, I turned it, I hope, and I tried to turn it uh, into uh, a work of uh, entertainment uh, and art, I hope. Um, and that is really what one does as a novelist approaching history uh, that is different to all the, to the techniques that are generally used by historians who come to a festival like this. You know, we have license as novelists to do this kind of thing, uh, and uh, I think it's, it, it, it has its value. I would never like to pretend that what I do um, uh, is, is in any way comparable to the scholarship uh, of a proper historian. Nevertheless, uh, we can open a subject up. We can make it subjective. We can get inside Picard's head. Um, a lot of my research involved reading the newspapers of the time. Uh, and you discover, for instance, that on the night 
that Dreyfus was sent to Devil's Island, was convicted and dispatched to Devil's Island uh, in the city of Paris, the city of light. That very night was the premiere of Debussy's La Prémédie d'un Faune, um, an exquisite work of music. So you have these two things balancing this de terrible, dreadful anti-Semitism and judicial cruelty and this exquisite music in the Salle d'Arcourt where Pica, I imagine in my novel, I'm sure he didn't, but it's legitimate for me to imagine that as a music lover, Dreyfus went down at 6.30. At 8.30, Debussy arrived at the Salle d'Arcourt. It seemed to me perfectly legitimate that Pica did too. Uh, and also, you know, the, the visit of the Tsar, the fact that the French army senior command were mostly obsessed with that, not with this wretched Jew on Devil's Island. That was what they were concerned about. I've never really seen a, news, uh, a, a history of the affair make that point particularly, but um, it seems to me quite important. And also, and this is a gift, was a gift for a novelist, on the day that Picard, or the week that Picard took over as head of the statistical section in 1895, Paris was under what was known as the Great Stink. Um, there were problems with the drains in Paris, and um, it was so bad that people could only venture out of doors with a handkerchief pressed to their nose. Uh, and um, as this, it may seem like a piece of clumsy symbolism to have uh, Picard go into the statistical section uh, on that day, but Nevertheless, that is what was happening in Paris at that time. So this is what you can do as a novelist. You can be subjective. You can try and uh, make the reader feel what it was like, the smell of the streets, uh, the, the configuration of the officers, the people, the, the, the climate, uh, all of those things you can use to try and bring a story alive. Why do the Dreyfus Affair in this way? Um, I think, and why is it important and why should one feel attracted to it now? It seems to me that um, when I started looking at it, I thought that there was nothing to be said about the Dreyfus Affair that was very interesting in terms of anti-Semitism after the Holocaust. I mean, you know, so there was this event in Paris in the 1890s. What does that compare to Auschwitz? Uh, but you can see in the Dreyfus Affair the first faint drumbeats uh, that lead to uh, the dreadful murderous anti-Semitism that comes later in Germany. And from the same source... The humiliation of the defeat in 1870. Prior to that, there was not much in the way of anti-Semitism in France. After it, when a great nation is defeated on the battlefield, there's a search for scapegoats. So, you know, what has gone wrong with French manhood? Why have we been defeated by this newly created united Germany? And uh, that led to a feeling that um, society was somehow being corrupted by all these uh, people with money and that the values were wrong and they got inside the French army in some way and bought their way in. And um, when the affair was at its height, synagogues were burnt, uh, Zola's books were burnt, um, people, effigies were burnt in the street, Jewish shop windows were smashed, anti-Semitic caricatures were put in the French press. All the things that we associate with Germany were happening in Paris in the 1890s. And... After 1914, after 1918, again, you have Germany, a great military nation, defeated on the field of battle, a sense of a stab in the back, and the whole 
process begins to repeat all over again. So the Dreyfus Affair is interesting for that reason, it seems to me, as a precursor of what, of what was to come. It's about racial prejudice, this affair. If Dreyfus hadn't been a Jew, I don't believe for a second that he would have been picked out and accused of being the traitor on such flimsy evidence. If Dreyfus hadn't been a Jew, he wouldn't have been subjected to what was essentially rendition. That is, he was whisked uh, off the streets and put into solitary confinement. And it was perfectly clear why the French army officers did this. They thought that what they called upper Judum, if they knew that one of their own had been arrested, would agitate for his release, and on the secret channels that they had, they would ensure that he got free. This was how they felt. Dreyfus was then subjected to a terrible regime of what we would call torture in solitary confinement. Even the military governor of Paris didn't know that Dreyfus was in his prison. Uh, he was awoken in the middle of the night. He was made to write out endless copies of the Bordereau. He was harangued. Uh, he was deprived of sleep. He was deprived of contact with his family. He wasn't allowed to see a lawyer for weeks and weeks. Um, uh, these are uh, techniques which I'm afraid are all too familiar uh, and have been all too familiar in uh, the West's uh, fight against Islamic terrorism. The secret trial he was subjected to. One thing that the affair, this affair convinced me of uh, is that secret justice is no justice. It can never be. There can only be justice when there's a great deal of scrutiny. Um, because if, if you justice has to be seen to be done in the words of the cliche the press have to be there the public if they want to go have to be there to see it only when there's that level of scrutiny the weight of light being brought to bear is the case sufficiently strong otherwise there's a natural tendency to just nod it through and this blanket use of the words national security uh, to short-circuit the justice system is at the heart of what went wrong uh, with the Dreyfus affair. We have the secret evidence that was passed to the judges, only four or five documents that they were given. And if ever there was a dodgy dossier, believe me, uh, that was it. And it was handed to the judges without Dreyfus or his lawyer knowing that the evidence was being considered. The judges saw it and they convicted on the basis of it and Dreyfus and his team never had any opportunity to challenge that evidence which turned out to be a tissue of lies. Uh, this we have seen happen so many times with the Birmingham Six, the Guildford Four, uh, one of the victims of that miscarriage only recently dead, saw his father die in jail. Uh, this is exactly the same as what happened in the Dreyfus case. Um, we also have uh, indeed um, such bizarre similarities as imprisonment on a remote island uh, away from um, spying journalists, away from lawyers, uh, away from families. Um, and it's clear that what was intended to happen to Paul Dreyfus, who was imprisoned on Devil's Island, which is about 10 or 15 miles off the coast of South America, was that he should die there. Uh, he had five armed guards watching him all the time, and they were not allowed to speak to him. He couldn't even ask them when the next mail 
delivery was likely to come. He was utterly alone, and when he was brought back to Paris, uh, uh, or back to France eventually, he found it very difficult to speak because his vocal cords had begun to atrophy. He found it quite hard to talk. Um, we have a most extraordinary cover-up. You would think that when Picard discovered what he'd found, the whole thing would very quickly be sorted out. Or, I mean, I think that he felt just common sense dictated that surely the French army would recognise it was better to bring this guy home and arrest the guilty man rather than let the spy continue to walk free in France and leave an innocent man on Dell's Island. But no, the French government refused, or the French military refused to revisit their error. And it took years. It was not until 1906 that... Um, Dreyfus was finally freed, and the only two men who were ever prosecuted in connection with the Dreyfus affair were Dreyfus and Picard. Picard himself ended up serving a year in solitary confinement uh, in his, because he was so determined to bring the truth to bear, and his enemies in the French general staff were so determined to stop him. Uh, and in a very, very small way... I do think that in the case of the hapless uh, Andrew Mitchell, chief whip uh, in this country, you see, again, the astonishing reluctance of those in power ever to admit their mistakes. It has to be dragged out of them piece by piece, and still, in that case, uh, it's, it's not over. It's amazing how long these things take the two other similarities I would just mention. One is the fact that Picard was really the first great whistleblower in the modern world. Um, the Dreyfus affair couldn't have taken place really 30 or 40 years earlier. The Dreyfus affair depended on there being a mass uh, democracy, depended on there being mass circulation newspapers, telegraphs, photography, telephones, motor cars. It was a product of the modern age, and Picard was the first modern whistleblower, the first in a long uh, and honourable line. I have mixed feelings that most of us probably feel about uh, Edward Snowden, uh, but really the Picard case is comparable to Snowden with one uh, difference. Picard was the equivalent of the head of the NSA. It's as if the head of the NSA had decided to uh, blow the whistle. And the other, and perhaps final thing I would say, the similarities or the, or the points one should take from the Dreyfus affair to our modern world uh, is that this affair was only exposed because of a free press. Um, and a scurrilous and pretty unpleasant press it was in Paris in the 1890s. They were the ones that whipped up racial abuse. They were the ones that printed the anti-Semitic caricatures. They uh, printed lies and filth. Uh, they behaved very, very badly. Uh, and the other side, the Dreyfusards, you could say, also did the same because they got hold of secret love letters that Esther Harsey, the true spy, had written many years before to his lover and completely illegally printed these and uh, helped destroy Esther Harsey's character. Uh, and Zola was prosecuted for criminal libel for uh, a work for, for Jacques, which blew the whole affair wide open. Uh, 
You have to take the rough with the smooth, in my view. That's the conclusion I came to about the French press there and our press now. Liberty is liberty and not another thing, and it often has very ugly manifestations. But if you brought in any system of control on the French press uh, in the 1890s, I wonder whether you would have had Dreyfus freed, because the great and the good were all agreed that it was better the affair was left quiet. So those are the points that I think drew me to this story subconsciously in a way when I came across Picard in the great scheme of the Dreyfus affair. That's why I wanted to uh, write it as a novel. Now I hope that Polanski will go on and make it as a film. He's waited and waited, but now he's, uh, he's, he's busy at work on it. Uh, and I hope that... Um, uh, the film will eventually take place. I know that quite often these films don't, but I hope that this will happen. Uh, there's certainly a sense of urgency you get when your director is 81. Um, and really, that's all I would wish to say about it. I do believe that the Dreyfus Affair is important, and I think that the best way that we can honour uh, the memory of Alfred Dreyfus, who suffered so nobly, endured and survived, is to try to keep an eye on protecting the freedoms which hopefully make it impossible for the same thing to happen here. Thank you very much. I'm now more than happy to take questions for the next quarter of an hour, however long we've got, about uh, this book or any of the other books or writing or anything else. Um, I do hope you ask some questions, otherwise I'm going to have to bore on for another 15 minutes. <laughs> and let's face it, nobody wants that. Uh, so who would like to uh, kick off? Uh, there's a gentleman there I can see with his hand up. Yeah, thank yeah. you very much. Uh, did the duel or something like it happen as an historical event that you describe in the novel? Yes, um, almost everything in the novel uh, that you think is outlandish and, and couldn't be true happened. Uh, wherever anything is dull and prosaic, that's probably me. Uh, the, uh, it, it's completely true that in the end, Colonel Picard and Major Henri ended up fighting a duel because uh, this came about from the Zola libel trial where Picard was at last able to give evidence and say what he knew in public. Uh, Major Henri came to the front and, and confronted him and accused him of being a liar. And Picard said, I will have satisfaction for that remark. And in due course, they did uh, fight, fight a duel. It's also true uh, that the forger was found hanged in a seedy uh, French bedroom. It's also true that uh, Dreyfus's uh, and uh, indeed also Picard's lawyer, the greatest lawyer, barrister in Paris, uh, Maitre Laboury was shot about 25 minutes before he was due to question General Mercier on the stand. Uh, so all these things which you would think, oh, my God, that cannot possibly be true, uh, they are true. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is one of the things that I face with this story. Often one, a, a historical novelist will take a situation of First World War, Enigma at Bletchley Park, Pompeii or whatever, and will graft onto real-life events um, a story. Uh, 
Uh, that is what I've done in the past. This is the only time I've ever found myself with a story that was so amazing that it was my job simply to tell it. Uh, and, and almost everything, every character that, who is in the book and virtually every event that is in the book is true. Uh, yes, uh, lady here. Uh, how, how much of an oh, embarrassment... Sorry. sorry. Yes, go ahead. Uh, how, how much of an embarrassment is the Dreyfus Affair in France today? Well, I don't think it is anymore, uh, is my sense. Uh, rather to my amazement, the, friend, the French edition came out a month, uh, two or three weeks ago. Uh, the French uh, Defence Ministry read the book and agreed to let us hold the launch of the book in Picard's old office, in the Hotel de Brienne, which has been the residence of the French Minister of War, Minister of Defence, uh, since the 18th century. And the Minister of Defence himself turned up. So he, and he didn't look very embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> And uh, Charles Dreyfus, the grandson of Dreyfus, came to the, came to the launch. And uh, it was a very moving event. And uh, afterwards, he, he sent me a picture of himself. I wish I had the visual aid to, to flash it up, of himself with Alfred Dreyfus in a garden in Paris in 1934, just a year before his grandfather died. Uh, it makes you realise that events that you think are far distant in the past are really only a handshake away. Uh, so, no, I don't think... I think the French... This is a lot of aspects of French history maybe they haven't come to terms with, but that, that, that I think, has been um, brilliantly uh, researched by some young historians who's, who've put a lot of their work on a website called the www.dreyfusaffair.com, uh, which I strongly recommend if anyone wants to uh, pursue this any further. Yes. This, this lady, oh, this was, that was the lady's question anyway. Yes. Uh, Mr Harris, could you expand on why Esther Harsey was never really brought to justice and why the British government allowed him to live free in this country until his death? Yes, well, Esther Harsey did suffer the melancholy fate of dying in Harpenden. Uh, so... <laughs> so... To, to that extent, he didn't get off scot-free. Uh, Indeed, he is in Harpenden Churchyard. Uh, Esther Harsey uh, was uh, a rogue, and the moment that uh, Picard started to investigate him, it was clear that they could own, he was bound to be the traitor. He had chronic money troubles. He was a, t a lie, constantly known as a liar. He'd been in trouble before. He was quite well protected because he, his na family name, of course, was very impressive in France, and also he'd married an aristocrat's daughter. Uh, he um, was... I mean, the French general staff faced a, faced a dilemma. If Picard investigated Esterhazy and established that he was guilty, they would have to acknowledge their error that Dreyfus was innocent. Therefore, it was necessary for them to halt Picard there with Esther. Esterhazy became their line that they had to defend. And they knew he was a crook, but they... The, the, the price, as they saw it, of preserving French honour and the honour of the army was bizarrely to do everything they could to assist Esterhazy and everything they could to uh, 
to, to blacken the name of Pika. And so Esterhazy found himself being aided and protected, uh, being tipped off, uh, being... I mean, when he fought his duel with Pika, uh, uh, Henri fought his duel with Pika, uh, uh, Esterhazy was there, and, when, and uh, Esterhazy and the chief of the general staff were with Henri afterwards. I mean, Esterhazy was looked after. Uh, eventually, it became clear that he would inevitably... Prosecution. Then he fled to England just as Zola had fled uh, to escape the courts uh, because at that time uh, the English tradition was to take in um, political uh, figures of all sorts, you know, anarchists, Marxists, Bolshevists, uh, crooks. Uh, we took them and gave them Oscar Wilde. That uh, seems to have been the... <laughs> the, the way the business. But um, Esterhazy continued to protest his innocence. He changed his story and said, OK, yes, he had written the Bordereau, he had given it to the Germans, but it was the French government had told him to do it. That became his story, which has sort of bedeviled uh, the whole uh, historiography of, of the Dreyfus affair ever since, because there are still some crazy conspiracy theorists who think that actually the whole thing uh, was engineered all along to put the Germans off the scent of the war-winning gun which the French were developing, the Soissons cans, which stopped the German army on the Marne, uh, and that they... Uh, so, so Dreyfus gave them chicken feed uh, to con them so they didn't know that gun was being developed. It's all complete nonsense, as most of these conspiracy theories are. Uh, to what extent do you think was this military intrigue reflected in the performance of the French army in, certainly in the First World War, perhaps even the Second World War? I, that is something I am not really competent to judge. Um, some people say that it cleared out a lot of uh, dead wood. Uh, others say that it completely destabilised and sapped the morale of the army. Uh, I'm not, I can't really answer it, to be honest. I don't know. Um, there was... Uh, you know, the Dreyfus Affair had a colossal impact on French society, uh, uh, the disestablishment of the church, notably. Uh, among Picard's other characteristics, as a lapsed Catholic, was a bitter dislike of Catholicism, uh, and he was quite a dedicated atheist and left instructions he was to be buried not in accordance with any rites of the church. Um, but, and and uh, I don't want to give away the end of my novel, but I fear I should probably have to. Of course, Picard himself ended up as Minister of War when he was cleared. Uh, so for three years, from 1906 to 1909, he actually had command of the French army, and he's, he died in a riding accident in Amiens, uh, in January 1914, he was thrown from his horse and died a couple of days later, very bravely, but suffered a lot. Uh, and, but for that accident, as commander of the French Army Corps at Amiens, we might remember Picard not for the Dreyfus affair, but in the way that we remember Foch uh, or uh, the other commanders of the French Army. You said that you hoped this would never happen here. In the light of the recent decision to try two men for terrorism primarily in private. What do you think about that? Oh, I think it's a disaster. I mean, uh, I, I really do. I, think, I mean, I think I'm not soft on terrorism. I just think it's a disaster. I think the most shameful thing about the last Labour government, to be honest, uh, was the 90-day detention without trial, which I find, would find staggering from an extremely right-wing and reactionary government. Well, why should I be surprised it came from Tony Blair, therefore, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it is... Uh, 
It seems to me amazing uh, that that sort of thing. It's it's a sort of short. It's a shortcut to uh, miscarriage of justice, which nobody wants to see, and to a loss of prestige. And it's a, it, you know it's a, it. There's no point in surrendering all the values of justice, democracy, and free speech that you have in order to protect those same values. That is a complete nonsense. Uh, and I'm afraid it was part of the general glibness and lack of historical sense uh, of the Blair administration that they would do such things which have simply rebounded on us, as, as anyone at the time could have said. So I'm afraid I'm, a, I'm passionately against secret trials. There is no doubt that if Dreyfus had been tried in an open court, he would never have been convicted. It simply would not have happened because the moment the French army had to start producing their evidence at the Zola libel trial, as Picard, my character, observes mm. in the novel... It fell apart like matchwood. The moment you put it up against an, a, a, an advocate like Lavery, who was known as the Viking, this giant, brilliant forensic cross-examiner, the whole thing fell to bits. So, you know, we have to have that uh, uh, in our system. We have to, otherwise you will get miscarriages of justice, I'm sure of it. Hi, Robert. It's John Sessions. Um, Hi there. It's, probably, it's not part of your novel, I'm sure, which I haven't read yet, but... Uh... Did, what, what thoughts have you on the death of Emil Zola following his publication of Jacuz? And the, supposedly he, he was gassed by a bad installation of gas in his house. Do you think he was murdered? Well, it, yes. I mean, what, happen, what happened was his chimney was blocked, and so he asphyxiated. He was asphyxiated by the fumes from the, the coal or charcoal or whatever it was that he was he was burning normally i would say you know there's nothing to that that must be you know these things accidents happen but i'm afraid there were so many mysterious deaths in the dreyfus affair so many strange things happened um that i would not think it at all unlikely um I, if writing this novel has taught me nothing uh, else it has taught me uh, that by and large um things are often much more sinister than you think uh, uh, and I now see, for instance, the psychology which leads to um, really quite decent men and women in charge of institutions uh, lying because they square their consciences by saying they're doing it for the greater good, for the greater good of the army or the country. Uh, and in that way, although it serves their own interests, they can go home and sleep at night, a point Zola makes in Jacuz. You know, these men have wives and families. Uh, and it doesn't matter what the institution is. It can be an army, uh, it can be a government, it can be a church... Uh, it can be the BBC, it can be the health service, it can be almost any large organisation where, where people are uh, intimidated into keeping their mouths shut uh, in order to protect their comrades. And, uh, you know, this is another aspect of the affair which I think we have to uh, keep, in, keep always in our minds. And, and, yes, so, yes, I wouldn't be surprised if Zola wasn't in the end uh, murdered because he stirred up a lot of antagonism and faced a lot of death threats. Uh, it was the most magnificently uh, brave thing that he did to invite the government to prosecute him for libel. And he was set upon by the mob on, on several occasions. If I could uh, change the subject slightly, you asked, uh, if you, you said you'd be open to answering any questions about a broad swath of novels. Yeah. Can I just ask, uh, you've covered you know, lots of different periods of history in your novels. Uh, which one is your favorite and why? Favorite novel or favorite period? Either or both. <laughs> uh, uh, well, 
I think that this um, this is at the moment I would say my favourite novel. If I had one, I I, I feel um, maybe for personal reasons it was a risky thing to write. I wrote it in six months. It was uh, it was uh, this time last year. It still wasn't finished, um, and I really had to just sort of throw my cap over the hedge uh, and go after it by you know and the research and so on but it, I had a tremendous feeling of exhilaration writing it so I find this period of Paris in the 1890s immensely evocative uh, uh, and, and powerful and wonderful in many ways and the sophistication and the, it's the light and the dark entwined which I find so extraordinary but I am passionately interested in the Roman world and I have now thankfully returned to it and I'm back doing another, the final novel about Cicero and uh, that is I find also that period the last 25 years of the Roman Republic uh, I think is the most epochal uh, period in human history perhaps until the Second World War simply in terms of the huge stakes and the you know the massive upheaval in the world and the sophistication of a democracy a form of democracy which was smashed and is another period I think which has lots of lessons uh, for us today. Uh, do you know what the fate of the Mrs. Mop in the German <laughs> German uh, Army High Command was when uh, her role was discovered. She sort of disappeared. I mean, she was a very... Uh, she did. She really did look like a char lady. You know, she was uh, dumpy, black skirts, tough as old nails. Uh, she was married... Old boots, tough as nails, one of the two. She was married to a French um, trooper, and uh, she did sterling service for the French... Uh, secret intelligence. I mean, the things that she provided are staggering. And all this material, the Dreyfus secret material, is now available. You know, that, that was one of the lucky things that happened, which makes me love this novel particularly, that about a week, two weeks after I started writing it, the French government released all the uh, torn-up documents, all the love letters. There are about 80 love letters from Madame Hermance uh, um, de Vade, uh, the Dutch woman, uh, you know, mon chéri, j'adore. And uh, then you've got all the letters from um, Panazzari, the ma Italian major, dear bugger number one, uh, <laughs> uh, keep on buggering. Uh, it's really sort of... And so uh, Madame Bastian handed all this over for relatively little money. And then when the heat really... When the, you know, the Dreyfus Affair became the biggest news story in the world. I mean, there were 400 journalists covering it, uh, the when Dreyfus was brought back for a retrial and she disappeared. She, was, she never appeared as a witness. Uh, she was whisked away and I can't honestly tell you what happened to her. But the thing about the Dreyfus affair I realised is you could, you could write 50 novels about it. You could write one from the point of view of Madame Bastien. You could write one from the point of view of Major Panazzardi. Uh, point, of, point of view, if you know what I mean. Uh, or you could write it uh, from the point of view of Lucy Dreyfus, Alfred's uh, wife, who was the most extraordinary woman and who protected her children after her husband had been disgraced in this way. They were only about four and two. Uh, and she kept them, took them out of school, told them their father had gone away, but he would be returning. And one of the most extraordinary things about this story is that E. Nesbitt took that and used it for the railway children. The notion of the disgraced father uh, and the, uh, the, the wife who's protecting him and the children who play on innocently. Uh, the son of one of whom I met, which, is, which was an amazing thought. 
One last question. There's 35 seconds to go. Make Robert. it snappy. It is snappy. I'm so glad you brought up your Roman uh, novels. What's happened about... I remember reading a, um, an article you wrote about the Herculaneum Library and that it was going to be rediscovered, and, and um, that sounded so incredible. I just wondered what, what's happened there. Yes, this is the Villa of the Papyri and Herculaneum, uh, which may contain lots of... which has never been properly excavated, which is underground, and... Um, uh, may contain a library of lost treasures, such as Aristotle on comedy, famously, and uh, dozens of lost plays of Socrates, which schoolboys all over the world are waiting for eagerly. Uh, so, uh, it hasn't been excavated. It hasn't been excavated because, frankly, the Italians cannot uh, protect what they've exposed already. Pompeii is rotting. I was in Herculaneum only the other week, and uh, that, too, is degrading in the rain. Uh, so it's probably best left where it is, and hopefully some generation with more money or better technology will be able to preserve the past. Uh, I see I'm getting a very polite notice flashing saying, please end now. Uh, as uh, I've been talking about the French army, I must obey instructions at all times. Therefore, I shall end now. And thank you very much indeed for coming and listening. Thank you.